Would you open your Bibles to Haggai? Keep that open in front of you. Hopefully that will be of use to you as we study it together now. Well, as I said, this evening we reach the end of our studies in this short book of Haggai. And uh, I hope that you've enjoyed getting stuck into it. Uh, I certainly have, and I hope that that's been your experience too. Uh, If you've been around uh, for these studies in the book of Haggai, or if you haven't and you want to know what you've been missing out on, we've seen a lot over the last four weeks in this book about being involved in God's great building project. As we build up God's house today uh, through evangelism and through discipleship, building God's house numerically and also building God's house spiritually. And so I hope that if we've been following along over these last weeks, that so far Haggai has really helped us to see how that's a work that we should all be involved in together as a church. Even though it may be a work that feels costly and unimpressive, ultimately it's God's work and it's a delight to join in it with him. But as we come to the end of this series in Haggai, one challenge, one objection may yet remain. One thing we haven't quite addressed is that something that often puts us off modern temple building is that often it's not just our efforts that can feel weak. It's not just that we put ourselves down and feel like we're not as gifted as other people around us. Often the church itself can feel very weak, can look very weak, and seem, in the eyes of the world, totally insignificant. I'm sure we've all experienced that to a greater or lesser degree. I'm sure that many of us have families who think that we're completely ridiculous for coming out to church on a Sunday, uh, getting up early and devoting time to reading the Bible and meeting with God's people, giving up an evening after a lovely Sunday roast and we want to put our feet up and have a nap, but instead coming out to look at a very, very old book together. It can, can feel completely ridiculous to the outside world. And actually, sometimes we look at our unbelieving friends and family And their lifestyle of enjoying a Sunday in a much more relaxing way, having a day of resting and putting their feet up and maybe enjoying a lovely brunch together, can look a lot more appealing than getting dressed up and coming out to sit and listen to a sermon for half an hour, give or take. And of course, even more worryingly than that, it does feel like society at large increasingly hates God's church, can't stand us, and wants to see us pushed to the margins of society and eventually to completely die off. So in that context, trying to build God's church, trying to take a stand and proclaim Jesus to a world which looks very strong, which looks very powerful, and which can make our lives very, very difficult for standing for Jesus, that can make that a less than appealing prospect much easier, we feel, to keep our heads well below the parapet, to just get on with church life in a quiet way without making too much of a dent in the world around us. Well, this evening I want to say that if the apparent weakness of the church is something that can really pour a bucket of cold water all over our attempts to be involved in church building, I hope and pray that this last oracle of Haggai has a lot to encourage all of us tonight. You'll have seen there in verse 20 that this prophecy was delivered as the word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month. In other words, 
This prophecy was delivered on the same day that we saw the prophecy from last week was delivered on. And if you were here with us then, you'll remember that we said then that while these last two prophecies of Haggai can feel a bit disconnected from the first two, actually what the Lord is doing through them is drawing his people then and our attention today away from their immediate circumstances and towards his eternal plans and purposes. It might not seem like it at first glance. This is one of those passages that can really make us scratch our heads when it comes up on our daily Bible reading plans. It may not seem like it, but these few short words delivered to a governor of Judah a few thousand years ago actually have a lot in them to encourage God's people today because they lift our eyes and our hearts towards two great promises of God. Two great promises of how God himself really is at work. Promises which enable us to keep going in our work of church building in the full assurance of what he himself will do and is doing. So that's our aim as we come to study this together this evening. And we'll use the two promises that we see in the two headings, two ways in which God is at work. First of all, God is at work and he will win the nations. God is at work and he will win the nations. Read verse 20 onwards. The word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month. Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I am about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I am about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders. And the horses and their riders shall go down, every one by the sword of his brother. We'll think a wee bit later about why Zerubbabel himself is being addressed personally. But for now, let's just clarify that even though this is a personal prophecy delivered to Zerubbabel, it also has a corporate thrust for all the assembly of God. As Jerusalem's leader, Zerubbabel's obedience to the Lord's will, Zerubbabel's faithfulness, his perseverance in listening to God's voice, they are all linked to those of the people. Just like with the kings of Israel of old, his faith and the people's spiritual health are completely intertwined. And you'll remember that's an idea that we've seen already in the book of Haggai. We saw back in chapter 1 where God commands repentance and obedience. And that's something which begins with Zerubbabel himself. It's he who does it. And then Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. And then the people who respond to the voice of the Lord. There's that order Zerubbabel, then the priests, then the people. So the implication is that as Zerubbabel responds to what God is saying, the people will follow his lead. So what are the things that God wants Zerubbabel to know? Well, we see first of all in those verses we just read that God will display his complete and devastating victory over the ungodly nations surrounding Judah comes across very clearly when we read verses 21 and 22, but even more so when we think about the phrases that are being used. Each one of them conjures up images of God's judgment from elsewhere in the Old Testament. So this language of God shaking the heavens and the earth, we saw that phrase earlier in chapter 2, but while there it was being used as an image of God drawing the nations towards his temple in worship, here it's being used to describe God's judgment. As it's much more common usage throughout the Old Testament. It speaks of a final day 
of judgment that God will enact over all the nations where no one will be able to withstand it. And that's just for a start. The rest of the vocab that's being used in these short verses, they take the reader on a slight tour of other examples of God's judgment throughout the Old Testament. So, for example, the word translated overturned, their chariots will be overturned, is actually the word that is used to describe God's destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis 19. And uh, the language, obviously, of chariots and riders, that's a throwback to the Exodus account where Pharaoh's chariots were overturned in the Red Sea. And then the idea of brothers turning on their brothers is something that we see in the Gideon story in Judges. There the Israelites didn't have to go to war. They simply blew their trumpets and the Lord's enemies turned on one another in fear and confusion. It's all a bit technical, but all of which is to say that in these two verses, verse 21 and 22, we see what, that one day the Lord will completely and utterly overthrow his enemies something that Zerubbabel can take great assurance in because God has proven himself throughout the history of his people. He's always been a God who they can trust, a God who wins victory over the people who oppose his people. Now I know that for us reading this in the 21st century, talk of God's judgment in the Old Testament can be difficult for us to hear and understandably it's the kind of thing which can provoke really searching questions from our unbelieving family and friends. And there's, there is a place for reading these words of sobriety. We shouldn't revel in God's judgment or try to heap it on people ourselves. But as we read this, I also want to say we can see how, as Zerubbabel hears these words, they probably don't make him squirm and feel uncomfortable. He probably finds them very, very reassuring. It would have been really easy for a returned exile to feel pretty insignificant and insecure. They have only very recently been defeated and taken into exile by one of these nations surrounding them. And even though they're now back in Jerusalem and the Babylonians have been booted out of power, another big, scary, powerful foe has taken their place. We might imagine how one of our Ukrainian brothers and sisters would feel if they finally got to go back to Kiev or Kharkiv, having been displaced by the Russians, only for another great superpower to invade their country and displace them again. They'd be feeling quite insecure and terrified. And so for the people in Zerubbabel's day, in Haggai's day, they must surely have thought, what is the point of trying to be faithful to God when all of these bad guys surrounding us seem to be getting on just fine without him, when any one of them could apparently sweep in and defeat us and carry us off to exile and slavery once again. What's the point in building the temple if yet another marauding army is going to come in and tear it down brick by brick? Well, the answer that, the, that Haggai gives from the Lord to Zerubbabel is that God is completely sovereign over those nations. Yes, they might look impressive and fearful now, but one day, his victory over them will be realized completely. So the big application point for Zerubbabel and for the people was to persevere in faithfulness to the Lord because on an eternal scale, faithfulness to the Lord is completely worth it. The aim of this section of Haggai is that God's name is rightly glorified 
as his people build his temple, trusting in his sovereign faithfulness to them. These verses say to Zerubbabel, as the leader of the people, have confidence to continue to lead this building project because the Lord is sovereign and victorious. And it's as he grasps this that the rest of the people will follow suit. So how do these verses help us to be involved in God's building project today? Well, as mentioned earlier, this kind of stark language about God's victory and judgment can sound a bit hard for us to take. But when we remember that Zerubbabel and the people needed to hear these verses as an encouragement that the world around them isn't as powerful as it seems, I think that's when we start to see how these are verses that we too can take heart in and take confidence in tonight. Because as we thought about at the start of this sermon, looking at the world around us can be a panic-inducing, confidence-knocking exercise. As we try to share the gospel with friends and family members who think that we're intellectual weaklings, who seem to be living quite comfortable, happy lives without the Lord Jesus, or for some of us, as we have to take very unpopular biblical stances on moral issues that can threaten our reputation or even threaten our employment can feel very scary to live a life of faith and to pursue God's building project then. And that's just within our own nation, thinking further afield. How easy must it be for our brothers and sisters around the world who are being imprisoned and tortured and even being killed for the sake of their faith? How easy is it for them to have confidence in building the church? How easy is it for us as we hear their stories and they cause us to weep and pray? Yes, we thank God that we can still proclaim the gospel in this country with relative freedom. But it can always feel like that freedom is under threat. So how confident do we feel? How confident will we feel if just offering to pray for a friend at work or to host a church service where we invite people from the community to attend can see us threatened find, shut down, or to use the common parlance of the day, cancelled. How confident will we feel then? Well, hopefully these words of Haggai should help us to feel very confident, because they help us to see that in the end, God wins. Yes, abandoning the temple building project looks very appealing at times, but ultimately it is worth it to keep going in that work, because God wins. And he will one day realize a complete victory over all his enemies. For us today, those enemies may not take the form of a literal invading army who want to persecute God's people. But every worldly power that seems so insurmountable to us now, every potential barrier to God's blessing, will one day be removed. So when we're tempted to think that the Christian life isn't worth it, that the world is having a much easier time and we should shy away from telling people the gospel, we need to constantly be reminded that God will one day enact his victory perfectly. As Christians today, we've already seen that victory announced in the person and work of Christ, his death to pay the price of our sin and his resurrection to show that he has won the ultimate victory over sin and death, the ultimate enemies of God's people. So we can have every confidence then to keep building the church, knowing that we can trust God's promises to make this victory complete one day, 
when Christ returns. That leads us on to our second point. God is at work, he will win the nations. And secondly, and finally in the book of Haggai, God is at work and he will preserve his king. God is at work and he will preserve his king. This is something that God wants all the people to hear. So why does he direct this prophecy specifically towards Zerubbabel? Well, we can well imagine that if the people were feeling insecure compared to the nations around them, that must have been particularly true for Zerubbabel. We've seen in a few of our readings that this is a book dated not during the reign of King Zerubbabel, but during the reign of King Darius. Zerubbabel, he is a descendant of David. He is the rightful king of Judah, the rightful leader of God's people. But here, in this post-exile world, he's just a governor. Just a local politician taking orders from the king and the king of exactly the kind of nation that has historically had a pretty dicey relationship with God's people. Actually, Zerubbabel as a name, it literally means seed of Babylon. His very name is a reminder that he is a weak, would-be king under the authority of a hostile foreign power. It would be like if the First Minister of Scotland was called the English or Great, but much worse than that, a genuinely hostile nation naming somebody, installing them as a puppet leader of the people when all the real power lies elsewhere. One of my favourite movies is The King's Speech. It tells the story of the reluctant and unassuming Prince Bertie, who on the eve of war, after his brother abdicates the throne, he's thrust into the limelight. He has to ascend the throne and become King George VI. So nervous Prince Bertie has to become the rallying point around which the whole country will gather on the eve of war. And there's this scene where he's voicing his anxieties to one of his most trusted advisors, where he says, if I'm the king, well, where's my power? Can I form a government? Can I levy a tax, declare a war? No. And yet I'm the seat of all authority. Why? Because the nation believes that when I speak, I speak for them. But I can't speak. You can imagine that maybe Zerubbabel found himself feeling a bit like that. Knowing that, as far as he could see it, all the real power lay with Persia, the dominant force of the day, with King Darius. And yet, in spite of that fact, all of the Israelites are looking to him for guidance and looking to him to set the tone for their spiritual health. It's all of the responsibility of kingship with none of the privileges. So if that's the case... He certainly needed to be reassured that the Lord would overthrow his enemies, just like we've seen. He's not relying on Zerubbabel being a very impressive king, riding into victory on his steed. No, God himself will win that victory. That's deeply reassuring for Zerubbabel. But even more than that, he really needed to hear the wonderful promise made to him regarding his own future, which we read in verse 23. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. When somebody makes you a promise, a friend or a family member or a colleague, you can never be entirely sure that they're going to keep that promise. Sometimes that's because they don't intend to keep it, when our children promise us they'll tidy their room, dress with pocket money, that's not a guarantee that's actually going to happen. 
And sometimes because even with the very best of intentions, they can't keep it. And we promise that we'll definitely be there for a certain thing. We actually can't control circumstances. It's a promise that we ourselves are powerless to keep. But notice here that declares the Lord is repeated three times. And when the Lord, when the Lord Almighty, the Lord of hosts makes a promise, well, he's entirely able. He can keep his promises. They are certain. And he's also entirely faithful. He will keep his promises. He can be trusted no matter what. So Zerubbabel can take assurance from the nature of the promise and also from the content of the promise itself. This central promise that he makes, that I will make you like my signet ring, it sounds a bit cryptic, but it's got a few strands to it. First of all, this is a loving image. There's a moment in the Song of Songs where the beloved asks her lover to make her like a seal on his arm, and it's the same word translated here as signet ring. So here we see the Lord Almighty saying to Zerubbabel, I will take you close to my heart and engrave your name there. So it's an expression of love and commitment. The Lord assuring Zerubbabel that in the midst of the turmoil described in verses 21 and 22, he will be kept safe as he's kept close to his Lord. So it's a loving image. It's also a term of kingly authority you'll probably know that when a king was sending a message back then, he would dip his signet ring in wax and use that to seal the message. And so that was a sure sign that the message really came from the king himself. If it bore his signet, his marker, it was a genuine seal of kingly authority and a vessel through whom he would rule. Well, same for Zerubbabel here. If the Lord is saying that he will make Zerubbabel like a signet ring, it's a mark of his own authority. It's a mark of how Zerubbabel is becoming the vessel through whom God will set his impression upon the world. Those are really wonderful images and really reassuring for Zerubbabel. But perhaps most significantly of all, this is a term of great personal significance for Zerubbabel. Here on the island, I've been learning over the last few weeks, everyone's got a nickname because uh, there's so many similar surnames. And Zerubbabel's nickname was probably Zerubbabel's signet ring because from his family, that was a significant term. Uh, Zerubbabel's grandfather was a king called Jehoiakim, also known as Kaniah, the king of Judah. And they would have called him Jehoiakim's signet ring because when he was on the throne, the people went into exile. He was a king who did evil in the sight of the Lord. And back, we read this in Jeremiah 22, the Lord delivers his verdict on Jehoiakim saying, as I live, declares the Lord, though Kaniah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, were the signet ring on my right hand, yet I would tear you off. In other words, you're not king anymore. The authority of Kaniah or Jehoiakim and his line is being stripped from them as simply as we take a ring from our fingers. So it was a nickname which wasn't a favourable one. Being called Jehoiakim's signet ring, being called Zerubbabel's signet ring, it wasn't a flattering image. These are words which must have loomed large over Zerubbabel for his whole life. The very mention of a signet ring must have made him break out into a cold sweat and feel deeply embarrassed. And yet here, here we see the Lord wonderfully, graciously reversing that language of curse which was used on his forebearers. 
the Lord very, very specifically evokes the language of the signet ring, the, the very thing which was used to curse Zerubbabel's forefathers to assure Zerubbabel himself that he is the means by which the Lord will stamp his authority on the earth. That must have been hugely comforting, hugely reassuring, very emotional for Zerubbabel to hear. He'd have every reason to feel like a totally rubbish, pretend puppet king, not least because of his lineage. And yet here, here he is receiving a promise from the Lord himself that he will be with him, that he will keep him safe, that he will use Zerubbabel to set his impression on the world. The take-home message for him then is once again, keep going. Zerubbabel, do not lose heart. As you look at the nations around you and feel like you're coming up short, keep going. Keep going with this work of temple building and know that I, the Lord of hosts, am with you and will use you. I, the Lord of hosts, am so committed to the prosperity of my people that I will reverse the curses of your forefathers, overturn them completely, and use you to bring about my promised blessing. That's the immediate application for Zerubbabel. But of course we know that the scope and reach of this promise goes far beyond Zerubbabel's own lifetime. If we were to flick forward a few pages in our Bibles to Matthew's Gospel, we'd see that Zerubbabel is mentioned in a very famous family tree. And Zerubbabel's great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandson is the Lord Jesus who is the true and ultimate recipient of this promise. Jesus is the true recipient of this promise because he is the one who perfectly fulfills what Zerubbabel can only point towards. Because the Lord Jesus is a servant king, a king who in human terms looks very weak, a king who is despised and rejected by people and yet precious and knowing eternal closeness to God the Father. A king who is the one who truly is the face of God's rule on earth. So verse 23 of Haggai chapter 2 was meant to give Zerubbabel confidence in continuing the Lord's work. And it also foreshadows the confidence that Christ had. If we've been following along our studies in the morning, we'll have read those famous words of Paul in Philippians of how Jesus became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, and therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus will be able to do this, go through all of this completely safe in the knowledge that he really was God's chosen king, through whom God would establish his rule and reign on earth, and through whom he would make a way for ruined sinners to be saved, to know the true reversal of curse as they come to have their sins forgiven and know God's ultimate blessing. So as we come to a close, how do we apply these closing verses to ourselves? Well, it once again comes back to a question that we've reflected on many times over these last four evenings. One in which we've been urged to consider or give careful thought to our ways. Like the question of, will we, will we keep building God's house today? 
Well, we keep going when our own comforts seem more attractive and important. Will we keep going when we feel like our individual efforts really don't contribute that much? And this evening, will we keep going when the whole world looks stacked against God's people and dead set to tear down what we try to build? Well, these final verses of Haggai help us to do just that. They help us to keep going. Not just because we're commanded to do, and it's the right thing to do, but wonderfully because the Lord has displayed his faithfulness in Christ. He said a few times over these studies in Haggai that God himself is the chief architect and master builder of his eternal project of restoration. As we see pictured here in the promises to Zerubbabel, in Christ, God has enacted the final phase of that work of eternity, a work which we have every confidence he is building, bringing to completion. So we keep going. We keep going in building the church as we speak the truth in love to one another, as we speak the truth of the gospel to the outside world, because the Lord has promised that he will protect the rule and reign of his perfect King Jesus. And if we trust in him, we are invited to share in that rule and reign eternally. Yes, the work is hard. The hours are long. Progress can feel painfully slow. And the earthly reward is next to non-existent. But we close these studies in Haggai knowing that the work of building God's house is entirely worth it as we share in the work of our risen, reigning, forever King Jesus. So in a moment's time, we're going to pray. And as we do, we are going to give thanks that God really is at work. He will win the nations. And he's also at work, having brought his chosen king safely through death. And so our prayer this evening, as we round off the book of Haggai, as we studied it together, is that we'd be mindful of his work. That we would trust in God's promises and delight in sharing the work of building his house today. So let's stand to pray now, and we pray to ask God to help us to have confidence that he really is at work to win the nations, that he's at work to preserve the work of his king. Let me lead us in prayer. Our Father God, we thank you for the assurance of your word. We thank you that though the world looks powerful, though your people, your church, feels weak, we could be tempted to feel insignificant. We thank you for the great assurance that you really will win the nations, that you draw many people from every tribe and tongue and language to know the Lord Jesus, to gather around your throne room in worship for eternity. Father, we thank you that you are at work to preserve the rule of your chosen king, that we have every confidence that as you brought the Lord Jesus safely through death, that he is risen and reigning still and will one day come again to usher in his perfect rule for all eternity. So we pray that you would help us to be confident in in these things, to trust in your promises, and that as we do, you would help us to delight in sharing in the work of building your house today, confident of what you yourself are doing through us, not for our own glory and renown, but only for yours. And in the name of your most beloved Son, the Lord Jesus. Amen.